Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Women's Center for Excellence, a research project between the Art Institute at the FHNW Academy of Art and Design in Basel and the Institut Tussouche, a joint venture with Gracina Kulczyk and Art Stations Foundation Switzerland. The Women's Center for Excellence is conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of women in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. The notion of the voice is a crucial one in the historical development of women's consciousness and their position and agency in society. How to discern when women are speaking in their own voices goes hand in hand with the question of how to know who we are and doing what we really want to do. The spoken and the unspoken are two dimensions of the inquiry into who benefits from our silence and what are the effects and consequences of our voices. Mostly unspoken practices of gender-based exclusion and discrimination favor the interests of others. This conversation, as part of the Promise No Promises podcast, took place in a Berlin living room at the end of February 2019, being contaminated, supported and interrupted by the inherent life of domestic spaces. During the editing process, sounds from the inherent materiality of speech were eliminated. Although they don't appear here, they came into existence to be part of this conversation of writer and curator Sonia Fernandez-Pan with artist Sigmar Zacharias. Sigmar Zacharias' work behaves like a continuum, in which different products appear in different formats, from performances to lectures or installations, where theory and materiality are juxtaposed. It is an ongoing practice that creates a scene in which crucial issues, such as a co-authorship with non-humans, the function of the audience and the production of effective and experiential knowledge also appear. The conversation with Sigmar began with a series of questions from which she debated strategically, starting with the question of what it means to be read continuously as a woman in the artistic context and, by extension, in the general social context. From here and in relation to her way of working, the conversation became a helpful toolbox, containing various strategies and tactics to be with and in relation to others from her visceral thinking. A toolbox in which non-violent conflictual forms of communication appear, also processes of liquefaction when thinking about institutional structures, the inherent materiality of the human body in its relationship with discourse or the naturalization of categories such as the artist. All this from the proactive ethos of an intersectional feminism that also involves an attempt to negotiate with our anthropocentric condition, if not androcentric, when relating with the immediate and global environment. What is it to be read as a woman rather than an artist? For example, as exhibitions that are collecting women artists or that in music it's even harder where you have like, oh, the female musicians or the female improvising musicians or in performance is not so because there's a much, much, much longer tradition, of course. It almost goes in two directions. It has like two vectors. And on the one hand, I think these claiming of territories are super important still. And on the other hand, 
I'm trying to argue or to be or to behave or to do not in reflection of being considered a woman. How do I consider feminism or feminist work? Feminism as a concept, thought maybe in parallel as Fred Moten's uh, blackness or as Bredotti's post-human. Basically, there are concepts and ways of epistemologies and practices really that oppose what we might have practiced and encountered for ages as humanism, which actually was only about white males. And they're also the white man also only as a concept. I mean, there are, of course, representations of it and practices, but white maleness is not only performed by men or by people with male genitals or by people that identify male. What is interesting is to think whether the concepts, epistemologies and the practices linked to. In this case with feminism, for me, it's much less linked to having a, identifying as a woman. It's actually linked with practices that are different, let's say, than patriarchal practices and are not necessarily opposed to, but they do destabilize patriarchal structures. So they're not out there in order to demolish them necessarily all the time, although that might also be one thing. But by merely behaving differently, it starts shaking up patriarchal structures. I mean, I have experiences with that in academia or in the arts or on stage or as teaching academia and then teaching. I also teach these nonviolent communications methods to worker representatives. I started doing this when I was 19, a foreigner in Germany, teaching how to speak with each other in German. So that, that was like, how many barriers do you hit with that? How many walls do you hit? How many spaces of resistance do you hit there of having men that were all 50 or older having to start considering changing their language because somebody who is a foreigner and is 19-year-old tells them so and has appears as a woman. It has something to do with what spaces we claim, but also how we actually inhabit the spaces that we're in and observe even the repercussions of what happens. So very often there is not just resistance, but there is a, a lot of fear uh, surrounding that. In academia, for example, it's to actually propose a restructuring of an institution, an institution that is not just dealing in the currency of topics, but dealing in the currency of its own organizational politics and to implement structures that destabilize those that, for example, create epistemological hierarchies of who is in the know and what knowledge actually is, and if knowledge is something that needs to be transmitted or if knowledge is something that gets generated and observed and collected and smuggled and cuddled in a way, like what type of different knowledges do we have? And within the academic frame, how do they get produced? And then because of academia, how do they get evaluated? What are forms of evaluation for knowledge that is not measured or able to be measured in ways that, let's say, rationalistic thought is being measured in truth values, genealogies, and the value of genealogies, where you inscribe yourself in. In the arts, of course, I stand with my body in the space, or I sit or lie, swim, dance, move, slobber, 
drool. And so there for me, it has always been important to find what is the relation between speech, imagination and embodiment. And not only of the performer, but also of the, of the audience. It's not maybe not speech, imagination, bottom, but it could also be thought processes, imagination and visceral reactions. This refusal to separate the visceral from the rational is something that, well, that breaks up a dichotomy that we've been trained to think and breathe and decide everything by. I don't think that is specific womanly, but I do think that's feminist. As an epistemology and as a practice, it goes against epistemologies and practices that we've been trained. There's one thing that I want to continue thinking about, this opposition between being considered as a woman, being considered as an artist, because interestingly, we have a problem with being generalized as a woman, but not a problem with being generalized as an artist, whereas the idea of the artist is just as differentiated as of being a woman. And so... If I want to be considered an artist, then I would like to be considered as an artist who has a family, who lives in a precarious situation, who has a post-human approach to or understanding of how she works and what she's interested in. And, and so it's not like I want to be considered an artist. I don't think those two things are so easily dividable and so easily played against each other. I mean, as complicated as it is to alley under the umbrella of feminism, I do think it's important. Although, of course, when I say feminism, I always think intersectional feminism, where actually, you know, being precarious is as important as having, uh, being considered a woman, as being a foreigner in a country, as being like all of that. And so I think it would be really interesting to have the same conversations actually about artists and not kind of always assume that we mean the same when we say artist, because Artists as an identitarian concept, for example, is absolutely not interesting to me. And artistic practices are, or concept of what it is, or the political contribution of art to our entangled society. That is interesting. So in that case, I'm, I'm super interested in thinking that being called an artist is more neutral than being called a woman. It is not. It then comes back to what you were saying before is how you're considered an artist, of course, depends on the institution that you're working with and collaborating with at the moment. So depending on the institution that you're collaborating with at the moment or that I'm collaborating with, there is a, a self-understanding of an institution. I don't even want to say necessarily identity because there are institutions nowadays that are in a fluid identity or that are constantly reorganizing themselves. And so... I'm viewed through that, of course. So they have certain practices of viewing their artists and working and addressing the artists. And the audience that comes to those institutions also comes through that frame, of course, and through that frame of perception. In a performance venue that is feminist, queer programming, I'm perceived differently, of course, than when I'm invited to some kind of the woman in a conference, let's say to be like the tokenistic woman artist. That is the frame that kind of reorientates how people are gonna, how they perceive not only the woman, but the artist herself. What kind of art they perceive is incredibly strong, still contextualized by the frame that they are part of, let's say. 
And then the question of communication and how do we work as feminists or how do we reorganize or re-reorganize. Like for me, a feminist institution would be an institution that finds structures, dissolves structures or shifts structures and refines structures. It's a constant sedimentation and shaking up of these structures again and again and again in conversation with the needs of all of its participants. And then, and all of its participants, I mean the artists, the curators, the programmers, the caretakers, the janitors, the money givers, the all of that. So what is it that actually generates something like a, an ethics, a working ethics of an institution? I'm super interested in thinking liquefaction as possibly a ethical practice or maybe as a philosophical figure liquefaction is a is a phenomenon that we know from geology and it's actually something that happens during earthquakes a lot and it happens it's the reorientation reconfiguration of solid objects that behaves as liquid under pressure so it's not that they change their state of aggregate they don't change completely from one to the other but it is through pressure a kind of destruction dissolving happens or a reorientation of the particle happens. I mean, you have to just imagine it basically as sand and your feet in the sand by the beach. We all know this, when you move your feet in the kind of very wet sand, by this pressure, you start changing the mix between sand and water, and so they separate. The sand particles get squashed together and the water starts blubbering around you. And that is just one phenomenon because under liquefaction the geological names are super nice there are things like the loss of bearing strength lateral spreading floating and earth undulation the loss of bearing strength is obvious if this material if the surface is becoming it doesn't behave like a solid anymore every edifice every wall every construction every structure that's on top of it is going to move and so this is where the houses start collapsing Lateral spreading is the thing when, again, because of this separation of liquid and solid, where you have like landslides and things like that, where actually the layers of the soil start being separating from each other. Floating is a beautiful one also because you have things that have been buried come up to the surface. So that refers normally to sewage pipes and things like this. And earth boils is when the whole earth kind of... And we see these, we have these images in our heads of streets that are really like undulations, like cakes, cream on a cake, basically. Oh, yeah, but then part of liquefaction is always the stage after, which is always sedimentation. It doesn't stay in a floating, in a kind of liquefied state. It actually sediments again. And the two types of particles kind of coagulate, so to speak, again. And then you have actually a solid surface that doesn't behave as if it's liquid at all, which might look completely different than before. And I find this not just as a description of what happens as a mode of destruction or as a mode of analyzing bodies under pressure, and with bodies I mean individual bodies and social bodies, but I'm also thinking of what would be practices that initiate these processes, because reorientation and reorganization is not necessarily always bad. I'm thinking of how can we reappropriate mechanisms and practices that are always used as reproaches, like the deconstruction of stuff, because this is actually not deconstruction, this is really a change in behavior. 
and then a solidification and then would be how do we initiate these changes in behavior and then solidification in that sense for example for me the feminist institution would be something that works through these shakings and then solidifies again for a while in institutional structures and then finds practices to shake itself up again so to speak and solidifies again This question of is feminist work always being nice and taking care or is it always accusational and in your face or critical thinking? The way how I would like to practice feminism and how I try to practice feminism is to not actually settle for these dichotomies, to not go into a practice of othering, but to actually keep constantly in these bridges between two positions or between two different epistemologies or between different ways of accessing reality and That reminds me, of course, of Audre Lorde, who talks about the erotic as being exactly this bridge between two. And a bridge doesn't connect in the sense of making one, but actually emphasizing the difference, but making the difference less dangerous or less fearful, let's say. There is something about the idea of companionship that I want to bring up. A companion, I would say, is just somebody who walks along the same way. We don't even know if we have the same aim or the same end point. But we know that we are going to, or we are seeing in the moment that we are accompanying each other. And sometimes it's not even clear who is accompanying whom. Now, if I just take an image, this happens a lot, for example, when you go traveling or for people who live outside as homeless persons, often there happens this accompaniment where you realize you're sharing the same space for a long time. And only after sharing the same space for a long time, you realize, ah, we are actually company for each other. There isn't a decision to do that. Maybe then later that decision comes. So what I find interesting about it is that there is no, not necessarily a common end goal. But there is a real commitment to spending, sharing this space and more than taking care of each other, maybe having each other's backs. For me, those are two different things. Taking care sometimes is projected towards the individual that needs care and having each other's backs is just I'm standing behind you and you can do whatever you want in front of me and I'm going to have your back basically and I find that a super nice image for thinking how is caretaking not always a pleasant activity neither for the caregiver nor for the care receiver and I think the having one's back has maybe more of a idea of solidarity to the other like solidarity doesn't mean that you have to be the same or you have to completely understand you basically stand by in order to create a critical mass You stand by something or somebody in order to give, to just put your body in, make the social body bigger that stands for that. And again, it's something about claiming space. It's like holding space and claiming space so that things, ideas, people become visible. What practices do we value? And whether it's the cooking, the thinking, the cleaning, the fucking the abstraction. And I think one of the ways how I um, practice feminism in a way of having a shift in values is, for example, that I consider the work, because you talked before about project art, like the difference between if somebody considers something a project, if they want to talk about art, if they want to talk work, if they want to talk about oeuvre, or if they want to talk about object. 
or performance in that way. I consider my work definitely since the last 10 years as an ongoing research in a kind of academic, abstract, embodied, practical, uh, social way with different side products. So there's still the idea of the product. There's not necessarily a complete cut off. Everything is just sharing practices or sharing materials. Those are also side products of this continuous engagement and labor and work and joy. But for me, that is a decision towards changing the value. So the value is not anymore in a final point, but the value is what happens in between those points that are all final points somewhere, but it has started before and it will continue afterwards. And a little bit like that is the feminist work for me. There is no end point. There is no fighting, destroying patriarchy, because as you say, I mean, it's everything. We're so inscribed with it and institutions are so inscribed with it that we can only constantly keep working in rearranging and changing and shifts and still achieve certain points, endpoints. But the value is not in have we destroyed it or have we gotten a new utopia, which I don't believe. Like there's not the counter idea. I don't have an utopian idea of matriarchy, to be honest. I have a constant idea of labor that has different companions and maybe in a way different comrades but those are different actions for me as you said before comrades they have a common goal and this common goal and camaraderie are almost like short spurts now we can define for this temporal frame we can define our common goal we can be comrades for each other and maybe before and after we're companions where we don't because for me the goal orientated idea is It's an idea that comes from working towards an utopian idea, as if we all agree on one thing. But if we have constantly different branches that we need to work on, and this is what intersectional feminism does, there is not one utopia of that would describe what intersectional, what is the realization of intersectional feminism. There is constant accelerations into different directions to say, now this needs to be addressed, and here that needs to be addressed, and we have to relate work with and for different groups of people, basically. And for me, that really also relates to how how you make art or how you make work. For me, it's not you make art, you actually work, and part of it becomes something that is considered a work, and, and the rest is the work. The work is a continuous practice, and a work might kind of congeal into a performance or into an object or into a, a talk or a book or whatever. You're talking about sustainable relations, I think. And there, for example, we can bring in the non-violent communication techniques because there's a misunderstanding between non-violent and non-conflictual. Communication techniques doesn't mean that they're not non-conflictual. Of course, you can have conflict, but that doesn't mean that it has to be violent. Because now we talk about conflict areas and they're always war zones. These two terms are conflated. But a conflict is a difference of ideas that can be either worked together in a way that you can come to the same, you're standing for the same thing in the end, or you find ways how to deal with both different desires at the same time. It means, for example, in negotiation that there is a a relation between what you achieve content-wise and what you achieve as 
on the relational level. So, for example, violent communication doesn't care about the relational level because they don't need a future with each other. In a war zone, I don't care about my adversary. I, I want to destroy them. So I will try to gain everything I can from that situation, gain the territory, gain the minerals, gain the everything. And it doesn't matter because I don't need the relation with my conflict partner. Whereas in sustainable relationships, starting from private relationship to working relationships, you need to have a future with each other if you want to keep on working with each other. And so the question is how to stabilize a relationship as a commitment to each other and at the same time take care of different needs, desires, strains that the two partners might have. And that can be conflictual. But it doesn't need to become violent. I think why so many contemporary theories are looking towards the arts is not necessarily for the representational function of imaginaries in the arts, but what I find much more relevant is training in collaboration. And collaboration in corporate companies often means dependencies in a linear fashion. So A needs to fulfill their job in order so that B can fulfill their job in order so that C can fulfill their job and they all build on each other. Collaboration is something completely different. I mean, I invite somebody into a collaboration because I value what they bring, whether it's the way they make music or they think through making music or they think through and make create visceral realities through light. And there's, of course, specific and specialized knowledge in these. And so that means that I don't need to need to know more. I need to know that I don't know and let that other knowledge and those other practices develop their approach to a common question. These practices and these proposals that my collaborators or we do to each other, will actually reshape also or drag each other into different fields. For me, in a real collaboration, it's not three different media, let's say, showing their expertise or, or practicing their expertise, but contaminating each other through ways of thinking through these different media and through what visceral and experiential situations they can produce. And that is something that has a lot to do with acknowledging the not knowing and acknowledging the not being in control of all the elements. Nobody, I'm not talking only about myself, but nobody in this situation. And to see how this other thing develops by people being committed to the same cause. And actually, there's a really beautiful term from uh, Isabel Stangers who says concepts creating a scene. So she turns around, she wants to make a distinction between it is not that all these different people are developing one concept. It is the concept that activates all these people and they produce different differentiations of what that can be. And you can call it a concept, you can call it a situation, you can call it commitment to a relation or to relationality. I think there is a very interesting shift from saying that there is a willful creativity or that a commitment is producing actualizations, let's say. 
so I agree that not all collectives are collaborations in the sense that I just described because very often it doesn't mean that when a group of people work together there is no hierarchies and I have no problems with hierarchies on the contrary I think hierarchies are very important because they have a possibility to dynamize situations but I always work towards not letting hierarchies to crystallize themselves into stable structures that means that different people take the lead at different times, so to speak. And then we come, of course, to the bigger apparatus of what makes the work possible, which is, of course, funding bodies, institutions who host it, technologies that are available, health and safety regulations, and all of that that are part of actually what a work can be and how it can stand. So, I mean, for example, when we're working on the cloud, we're working with this smoke up to a moment where we would just fill the whole room with smoke in the course of the performance. The smoke is the main performer, and so to create conditions for it to perform means, for example, to really dig into the actual politics of the space, which means, for example, is water and light and electricity on the stage allowed at the same time? Can we switch off the fire alarm and the smoke and the ventilation system? We're working in one theatre where the curator acknowledged all of that, but the technician one specific technician was really coming to his limits in how he can deal with this. And it was very interesting to kind of say, well, we can't not make the performance of the smoke, we can't make the performance of the smoke impossible and perform a bit more as humans, because that's not the work, that's not what happens. So that's what I mean with the collaboration is not just between the humans that are interacting, but also with the materials, of course, that are in the space, but also with the institutions and the politics and the technology available. And the other thing is acknowledgement and crediting. And there it comes to questions of equity and equality. There is also a misunderstanding of equity and equality in the sense that they should be the same. But what I find really a driving motor is that we are not equal. We should have the same equity. We should have the same value, but we are not equal. And that is something to strive on. The question of equity, it's a politics of crediting, for example. How do you deal with that? And it's very, very, very hard, for example, to do publicity work. Where does the work get slotted in? Does it get slotted in to visual work, choreography, performance, theater, where do they put it? Which box do they, can they tick with it? It's always very hard to insist that it was a collaborative work because people would like to have only one name and not 10. The work doesn't end with how the humans and non-humans in the rehearsal process, so to speak, work with each other, but also then how that gets communicated outside and into the world, not outside, let's say, <laughs> with the world and into the world. Every institution, whether it's online magazines, papers, radios, everything has categories. And work that doesn't fit these categories becomes very slippery for them. In a way, for me to have a feminist practice is an ethical practice of value questioning and value formation. There's a great curator called Bettina Knaup, who at the moment she works around waste 
in feminist performance practices and the idea of what waste is and it goes from object waste to human waste to waste of ideas and so on and so forth and of course waste becomes waste I mean the idea of waste as something that needs to be discarded is only valuable or functionable when we have an idea of what the ideal object is or the ideal idea is or the ideal situation is. I find this engagement with waste interesting because it it attacks and attaches itself exactly to this border of when is a thing fulfilled or complete or ideal and when does the destruction of that make it into something that needs to be discarded. And then, of course, you have these artists that work with the so-called discarded and re-enter it into a next process. So kind of continue with its life or is, I don't even want to call it life, with its existence. So the idea to have the right to exist, even when you're not what is considered to be ideal, is a very political understanding of what gets a right to exist, what gets acknowledged as an existent. Elizabeth Povinelli has this beautiful word, term of the existent. And so the existent can be anything, whether it's living, non-living, carbon-based or not carbon-based, meaning also including concepts and theories or practices. I bring her here because I was talking about the value of the existent. And so what is acknowledged as, not only acknowledged as existent, but valued as existent, refers back to our conversation before with the waste, because when we go away from the waste just being a part of a process of development of in a continuation of existence with a C this time, waste also is toxic waste on the planet, so to speak, is considered something that needs to be hidden, is considered something that needs to be out of the way. And the question is always out of the way of whom? There is also the question of, of green privilege. Who can afford to have the green lifestyle? Because where do all toxins go, for example? And she actually asks for acknowledgement that the toxins will not go away. So inequality will not go away. Material and immaterial toxicity will not go away. But the question is, how does it get distributed? To be very clear, a redistribution of toxins just means that everybody has to eat shit. It can't just be left on some people's shoulders. And so in that sense, for example, feminist activism is not trying to pretend to recuperate a perfect world, but to actually ask, how are we going to distribute the toxins? Which means, of course, that we will have to ask and acknowledge people who have not consumed toxins or have not been living in proximity to toxins until now might have to do that. So it's not a very easygoing or pure or comfortable way of thinking, but it is a way that acknowledges that there is an inequality of power, that there's an inequality of possibilities, but this inequality needs to be distributed in different ways. It's not a neutral situation. It will have focus points in different regions and then have to redistribute again. For me, this is where nonviolent communication is conflictual or nonviolent practices are conflictual. 
we are imposing on each other. We are imposing on the planet, we are imposing on each other, we are imposing on each other as humans and on each other as being interconnected and interdependent with human and non-human existence. But the imposition is not something that we can reverse or neglect or dissolve. It is something that, what I like to call being intimate and being intimate in uncomfortable ways in being extremely entangled and codependent and proximal to toxicity. And even when we're producing it, and we are producing constantly, so whether I'm doing that by how I speak or how I behave to somebody or whether I'm doing it because I'm part of a neoliberal capitalist society or whether I'm part of a consumer society, uh, we're still producing toxicity constantly. And how that then gets redistributed, I think that is something why I'm interested also in this idea of observing structures, building structures, and then being part of a kind of reshaping of structures and also, of course, being subject to it. In the artistic practices, how I understand collaboration and how I understand also being infiltrated, infected, destabilized by the collaborators being human or non-human, what I'm so drawn to is the experience of excess. This is why I'm also working with uncontrollable materials because they will always excess of what I can think or I think I can control. And to give oneself to this excess and to be part of this excess. And so part of the practice of the drooling lecture, for example, where I don't swallow my spit while I talk, is the question of what does it produce if I take language not only in its signifying function, but in its materiality. And, and here I'm talking about only speech and not written language, of course. And then there's different techniques, artistic techniques, of course, that I'm busy with. One is how to think in two layers at the same time. On the one hand, to develop a narration or narrative around spit and how it functions and what it is and how it can work and why it is a transgression or gets read as a transgression, not only because it leaves the body. And for example, when I give a lecture and when I drool, then it gets rid of the transgression. When I have sex and I drool, it doesn't. So there's also different contexts that are being mixed. And at the same time, my desire to work with this as another possibility or as another reality of speaking, uh, which is I can only speak because I have a body and this body produces saliva that helps me to articulate. There is breath, there are teeth, there are muscles, there is a tongue that forms these words. And what happens when they work on something else than producing meaning or producing articulation? How is the working of the body in breathing, clicking, drooling, how does it work together or in parallel to the signifying function and the meaning formation of language. And the artistic technique, let's say, is to, to try to shift and see when do I go with what the drool wants or the sound wants that gets produced. And so when do I value the sound aspect of the speaking apparatus and when do I value the capacity of meaning formation of the speaking apparatus. Yes, it is a technique because there's a lot of work, labor really in that. And what I'm interested in is to observe how that 
experience of going with the functions of the body and going with the functions of the mind at the same time, not to go from one to favor completely the other. So it's not like going from meaning to nonsense, but to see what happens when I constantly move back and forth or when it moves me back and forth, because there is not only the willful subject, but I'm trying to take the spit and the sound as much as existent as the meaning and the signifying function of language. Because this is the same question with, for example, with dancing and speaking is always like, what is the dancer dancing the dancer or is the dance dancing the dancer? With speaking is the same. Is the speaker speaking the speech or is the speech speaking the speaker? That's why I restrain myself to say, I do this and I, because it's actually really what is activating what at what moment. Where I'm interested in how it enables thinking and uh, sensing at the same time for me, like how do I think differently then when I allow this to happen back and forth. And the other thing is I'm very, very interested in what it does to an audience. We are conditioned in either listening and understanding or in only sensing. And what happens here very often is a proprioception, synesthesia, that people start producing saliva themselves, that people have different associations, they produce all kinds of bodily fluids. Again, it doesn't kind of allow people to just settle in, okay, now we're just sensing the world. Or now we have to understand the world. Because again, it's not about destroying one in favor of the other, but it is this coexistence. For me, that it's wonderful that we can have abstraction. And it's wonderful that we can draw and be visceral. How many different ways of visceral rationalities can we develop? And in that sense, how does this being experiencing both at the same time rationality and viscerality as performer but also as audience member what questions does that bring up the drooling lecture puts of course the female body as the speaking apparatus because it's me doing it and because i drool and i do play consciously with projections of pornography also on it not content wise i always have five reactions people just don't believe that i'm going to do it there's hysterical giggling and then there's complete objection like people who really get gagging reflexes and, and can't watch this is what i see because the audience is normally lit and then what i hear afterwards are these things that i'm very interested in which is what i said before the synesthesia thing and the mirror neuron activity that people start producing body liquids and then what i also hear of course is association projections of pornography and sexuality sometimes because the text is different every time. It circles and addresses certain themes that are important to me, which is questions of intimacy and alienation with regards to political ecology, biological ecology and relational ecology, I would say. And sometimes in these texts, the sentence appears, I don't want to stand here in front of you and drool as a woman because that would be too easy, because that would be exactly reproducing the insistence of a dichotomy between a critique of rationality or rationalism towards a viscerality as an exchange, like instead of, which all the ramifications it can have, which is uh, the hysterical woman, the leaking woman, the uncontained woman, and so on. 
for me is again this kind of movement back and forth i'm insisting on making sense and not making sense at the same time because i'm trying to use also different languages in the sense of i allow language to be discursive i allow language to be associative i allow language to be narrative uh, in the genre of storytelling or poetic poetic in the sense maybe of poesis of really letting to appear something that wasn't there before i don't know what it is going to be how these shifts are going to be and what the experience of the whole thing actually which includes all these shifts and changes and because what it also does is it, not that i play but it creates a situation of recognizability and non-recognizability of form and formlessness and this movement that that produces in the audience at least this is what they say is destabilizing it starts bringing up questions of why do i feel so comfortable in places where i recognize something and why do i feel such discomfort in places where i don't recognize something or where i lose my recognizing capability in my back of my reference point in history is of course also the naked action lecture by carolyn schneeman where she takes off her clothes while she speaks in order to emphasize a woman speaking with all the associations and prejudices against women speaking by the way just today in my work with negotiation training for example i had a participant telling me you know my problem is that when i see a beautiful woman i can't hear her and i don't think he's alone on this planet to be honest who has this problem and my way of dealing with it was to turn around to him and say oh that's really interesting that's a very difficult problem how do you deal with that like how do you deal in life to actually not miss out on a lot of things with the drooling lecture is not to kind of say the non-rational is the female and i want to occupy that territory and make it valuable but i am again shifting between both and trying to acknowledge and value abstraction as much as viscerality as much as storytelling let's say as different forms of knowledge formations what my work works for is the denaturalization of structures that structures of ways of thinking of ways of being together doesn't become naturalized they're taken as given and they're hence for the power structures that are building them are becoming invisible so the denaturalization for me is not turning to technology or um turning to a kind of object of the posthuman but it's more like well, how can be the posthuman thought as a operative tool how bradotti says and interestingly i mean that whole conversation starts for her with the claim that we women were never human we've never been human and again it is not human in the sense of humanism the human that has been proclaimed and lived and built and keeps being constructed as the white male as a concept so if we have never been human then what are all the posthuman strategies and tactics to carve out a space of living to take the space of living and if that gets observed as an endangerment of existing structures that's a side effect for me there's two axes here on the one hand there has to be a clear analysis critique naming and blaming i'm all for that and at the same time there has to be a kind of proactive development of strategies and tactics whether they are in social formations in academic thinking or conceptual thinking that is not academic in different practices including the artistic practice that just develop 
ways of imagining and doing that which is not human. I was asked to write a text, an academic text, and I was thinking, I wonder how the institution would react if I underlay it with like different mood sounds, mostly subwoofers, I was thinking, like how to operate on the somatic level while you, while you read something. Exactly this distinction that thinking can only happen in abstraction is such an embedded form and it never happens in abstraction. It happens, as you say, when you shower, when you cook, when you meet people, when you have sex, when you masturbate, when you read, when you discuss and talk with people. But all of that is forming thinking. And, and this has again to do with that then thinking needs to be transmitted and to kind of sterilize the transmission, nothing else is allowed. What is then created in this sterilization is a promise of purity. And that exactly is not where the thinking comes from. So maybe the thinking comes from an impure, viral, infected, inflamed even thinking, but then we mold it again and again and again in spaces that want it as something that can be easily recognized, transmitted, cut off from any kind of existent that negates any kind of contamination through its situation. Situated knowledge or situated practices, it is only from where it is happening right now. And here and right now is, of course, nowadays local and global at the same time. But it is different nowadays than it will be in 10 years and than it was 10 years ago. So it is different here in Berlin than it is in, let's say, New Orleans or it is in Cape Town or it is in Osaka. I think I'm trying to work against purification, against the idea of cleaning out different segments and pretending that they're not entangled, dependent, co-formed, reshaped, disturbed by each other. This is what I was saying when I was saying, you know, the artist is as complicated as the woman. Because when I'm called a woman artist, of course, it's problematic because I say, yeah, but which part, you know, how? Even when we say feminist, there are so many different strands of feminism. Inclusive, exclusive. For me, the exclusive ones are not what I consider feminism. But the appropriation, the naming, maybe this is an interesting another interesting practice. What is the practice of naming as making visible and the practice of naming as capturing? So on the one hand, a naming practice is definitely a practice of capturing something, of making it recognizable, of making it qualifiable in a specific grid. And so the naming comes from that grid. It comes from that system of power. And what are naming practices that swarm through different systems of power? Maybe then are practices of making things visible. But that's so complicated because it all works through naming. Naming per se can be a power instrument and naming can be something that works against naturalized systems of power. I feel less framed in the arts than I feel framed in academia, I have to say. In both fields, I take both strategies, one of really analyzing and critiquing existing systems of power in very local situations. For example, if there are collaborations that then get claimed as single authorial works, 
or where decision-making processes in the end always have to centralize around one person. And if that one person, very often it is a male person, then I point that out. I don't play along. I try to not play along. And in order to not play along, I need to constantly analyze and critique the situations that I'm in. Also self-critique and self-analyze because this internalization of whiteness, this internalization of patriarchal modes, I find that the most devastating if you are in a group that considers itself feminist, let's put it this way, uh, no matter whether they're identified women or not, and that we find ourselves falling back in patriarchal power structures and organization forms. Especially there, I try to analyze and reflect on what we're doing and how we're doing it. I do take an active, let's say, aggressor. As I said, I am all for blaming and naming and pointing out. I'm not so much for complaining, because complaining to me is an action that you do towards an authority. You complain within an existing system. So if I file a complaint, it means that I accept the system and I'm just complaining against how it functions. I'm trying not to complain, neither as in my words nor in the way how I work, but to contribute to a kind of collective reflection and analysis of how we do what we do and how we're being together. And this how always connects the private and the public, the eating together and the working together, and acknowledging that it goes through all these timescales. And at the same time, I'm trying to just develop different strategies and techniques that propose different ways of being together. A system gives you a place to complain. You know, you have these complaining officers where <laughs> you can call in and complain about your stuff. So a system provides a place to complain, whereas a critique is also from within, but it doesn't necessarily complain to the right person. A complaint officer gathers the complaints, puts them in a drawer or brings them to somewhere where you can actually change something. Whereas a critique can be addressed to wherever and whoever and whenever you want to. You don't need to be legitimized to critique. Complain for me implies a legitimation by the system that you may complain. They make a space for complain. In the same vein of ideas, indeed, a complaint officer attends to your complaints. They help you to get over your anger or rage or whatever, right? The helping always also presupposes that you are allowed to complain and you will allow to receive help. This is one line of thought. And then the other thing is like the distribution of work, however, in a collaboration for me is not helping each other. There's not one person who legitimizes the other to help or to ask for help. You just invite different modes of working into a situation and then there needs to be made a contract. So I'm making a contract that I commit to this work together. We don't know where it's going to end. There's no complaining in the sense that there's no over like system that organizes everything because it might be constantly changing through the way how we work. We're committed to working together. We don't even know necessarily what the work is that will come. We're committed to a question, let's say, or we're committed to a, a specific practice. 
and then what will come out will come out so there's no kind of overarching system that decides how we need to work who needs to make the decisions who is the complaint officer who takes care of your <laughs> complaints so what we can do is critique each other and critique how we work it's really a relation of equity so this is why when people start complaining about a situation i always feel that there is a, a shift in value they're asking to be attended to i try to avoid complaining culture and practice gossip rage anger critique all of that If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please go to our website, institut-kunst.ch. That's institut-kunst.ch. Or request information or subscription to our newsletter at info.kunst.hdk at fhnw.ch. That's info.kunst.hdk at fhnw.ch. Institut du Souche is part of Museum Souche, an initiative by Art Stations Foundation Switzerland and Grazina Kulczyk. More information can be found at www.museumsouche.ch. That's museumsouche.ch. Promise No Promises is produced by the Art Institute HGK FHNW in Basel and Institut du Souche Art Stations Foundation Switzerland. Recording and Sound Design, Sonja Fernandez-Pan. Editing, Elena Cesar. Research Assistant, Alice Wilke. We also want to thank the Stiftung für Erforschung der Frauenarbeit for their support.